0: For the past uh, 15 months, we have been working through Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, learning what it is to be a healthy church. Um, Corinth was not a healthy church. Uh, So it's kind of like you learning to be a healthy human being from a guy like me, whose primary diet is pizza and ice cream. Uh, You're kind of learning the what-not-to-do approach uh, to life as you look at the Corinthians letter. So over the past several weeks we focused our attention on the controversies they were having regarding spiritual gifts. Paul begins addressing that in chapter 12. Uh, we've covered part of that and actually part of it in addition in chapter 14. But spiritual gifts and I'm going to keep keep reiterating this as often as I can are the supernatural abilities that the Holy Spirit empowers us to perform uh, so that the church can be built up. As we studied that there were a couple of key points just want to remind you, every member matters. Every one of you matters. Every one of you is gifted in a certain way, and you're meant to use that gift to build up and encourage the people that are sitting around you. That is not by my design. That is by God's design. And when we don't use our gifts, when we don't serve and love one another, uh, it does affect the body, and so this consistent challenge that I've given you over the last several weeks has been to serve one another. Use your gifts in the lives of the people who are around you and further their betterment. So let me let me ask you: Who who did you serve this last week? Who who did you pray for today? Who did you come today? Maybe you came ready to share a word of encouragement with somebody because you just simply wanted to serve another person. And I hope we have that mindset. And if the answer that comes to your mind is is nobody, I I didn't come praying for anybody, I, I didn't come ready to serve anybody, then either we aren't getting it or we're just simply willing to live in disobedience to what Christ has commanded us to do. Listen, this stuff is meant to reshape the way we approach gathering together as a church. It's meant to reshape the way that we live our lives and our focus. And speaking of not getting it, the Corinthians didn't get it. Let's talk about them for a moment. Uh, For many in the Corinthian church, the gifts had become about notoriety, prestige, power. Uh, In my uh, gym, Anytime Fitness, down here in the free weight room, they have uh, a couple of whiteboards up on the wall. And uh, those are for keeping records of people who lift the most. If you do bench and you get to write your name up there and if you squat. So every time I go to grab like my 150 pounds to bench, I'm reminded that, that Matt can bench 500 pounds. Or every time I go to do some leg presses, I'm reminded that some girl presses more than me. Uh, I own my weakness. It's okay. I can live with that. Uh, but imagine that, that setting in a church. Imagine if you walked in here and I had replaced... These, uh, these fake window things up here with whiteboards. And so, so we'll say Dustin comes in on a Sunday, and he, he did something really spiritual this week. Uh, he, he gave some money to people helping people. So he writes his name up there. Uh, top line, I've got the record of being spiritual. Well, we'll say Tina walks in. So, so Tina comes in, and she sees, oh, he just gave some money. I've been so gracious, and Chuck's been such a jerk this week. And I've been gracious, and I've been kind, and I've put up with him. And so she wipes out Dustin's name, puts her name up there. And then somebody else comes in. We'll say Tyler comes in, and Tyler this week, he spent some time sharing Christ with some of his co-workers. He says, that's more important than all of this stuff. So he wipes out Tina's name, and he puts his own name in there. Doesn't that sound like a really good idea? Probably probably not it would be hard to imagine a church that would act in such an arrogant way but the Corinthians weren't too far off you know if if we're going to be completely honest uh, we have subtle ways of of displaying our records I think of my own life and I I can work certain things into a conversation so that I look good so that I sound good But for the Corinthians, if a member had the gift of tongues, well, they were top tier. They were right there. If they had a lot of money, they were welcome into the dining room to dine when they would have their meals and they were there when they would take communion and assured a place at the communion table. You might remember that from chapter 11. The Corinthians, in a way, had a records chart, and Paul spends a considerable amount of time throughout the whole of the book trying to get them to to think differently. Uh, so that they will act differently. Bad theology had led to bad behavior. And chapters 12, 13, and 14 are where he attempts to correct their wrong thinking, their wrong actions in relation to the spiritual gifts. And so far, we've covered all of chapter 12. So we've got that done. And we've covered most of chapter 14 as well. Uh, so these two chapters, 12 and, and 14, they act as bookends to the discussion. Paul often structures his argument with these bookends, making the point of emphasis the center point. This was ancient literature. They would do this oftentimes. You've heard me refer to what are called chiastic structures in the past that you find in the Bible, and that's taken from the the Greek word chi, which is the X. And so it means that the, the, the central point of that X is the most emphasized point. And so literary people would would write these things and bookend things so that they could emphasize the point in the middle. So chapter 12 is about the Corinthians' struggle with spiritual gifts. Paul offers some correction. Chapter 14 is about their struggle with spiritual gifts, particularly tongues and prophecy. Paul offers them some correction. But what do these two bookends prop up? doesn't take a huge mathematician to be able to figure that out, right? Chapter 12, chapter 14, what's in the middle? Chapter 13. What does Paul mean to emphasize? Chapter 13. What is chapter 13 about? Love. Love. We've encouraged you uh, to put to memory as we work through this this summer, the whole of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and I want to, to reiterate that challenge to you. I was sitting there kind of laying in bed last night trying to recite some of these things in my own brain, trying to go over and make sure that I'm hiding that in my heart. But how many of you are familiar with 1 Corinthians 13? In other words, it's a, it's a passage that you've, you've come across, you remember from some point in the past. Just, just raise your hand up. We'll ask for some participation here. Uh, how many of you have, like, uh, a piece of furniture, maybe it's a picture or, or a cross stitch or something in your house that has something to do with 1 Corinthians 13. It has some of this listed. Some of you, anybody? Yeah, a few of you. You're thinking about all the stuff that you have in your house. How many of you in your wedding ceremony had a portion of 1 Corinthians 13 read? Some of you are like, I don't even know my anniversary date. <laughs> I, I couldn't tell you what was read. It's a very common passage along these lines. Many, many secular liturgists consider this passage to be one of the most beautiful prose ever written about the character and the nature of love. So to use it in a wedding is is cool. I mean, it's great. But for our purposes, we need to see it in context. Because in context, Paul isn't using it to describe the love between a husband and a wife, though it would... Work for application. He's using it to describe the relationships between church member and church member. How we relate to each other in the gatherings. Love is meant to govern the way the Corinthians were to relate, love is meant to motivate the way they were to serve one another. The same is true for us today. So if you notice with me, Paul's lead into chapter 13, look at the very last verse of chapter 12, verse 31. Here's what he says in chapter 12, verse 31, but earnestly desire the higher gifts and I will show you a still more excellent way. Paul doesn't consider the spiritual gifts unimportant. We've argued that point over the last several weeks. They are very important to the life of a church, but there is something bigger than spiritual gifts. There is something better than spiritual gifts. There's something more foundational than spiritual gifts. There's something of greater necessity than the spiritual gifts. What is the more excellent way that Paul wants them to understand? What's the more excellent way that Paul wants us to understand? Love. Love. Chapter 13. Now, this idea of the centrality, the necessity of love, that isn't something that, that Paul came up with. This is something that we see birthed in, in the, the triune God that we worship. If you go to 1 John chapter number 4, verse 8, it says this, Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. It doesn't say that God loves sometimes or or God uh, does this certain thing that's loving. It says that God is. His essence is love. When God revealed a portion of his glory to Moses on top of Mount Sinai, you may may remember that story. Moses said, I want to see your glory. God says, "Uh, you'll die if I show you my glory. I'll show you a little bit of it. But along with that little bit of physical glory that Moses was able to experience came came a verbal part too. I want to read to you. Here's what it says in Exodus 34 it says, The Lord, the Lord, or the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, so, so this is going on as well, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. People so often cite the God of the Old Testament as maniacal and angry, judgmental. They're not reading the whole of the Old Testament because he is more often described as merciful, steadfast in his love. When instructing Israel on that same venture that Moses was on, he received the law. Instructing Israel regarding the way that life was designed. Here's a portion of what the law says in Leviticus 19. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to the edge. And neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest... And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, and neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. So he says, you need to to leave some stuff for other people. And then he goes on and he says, you shall not steal... You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. You shall fear your God. I am the Lord. And you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial uh, to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slander among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. All of the laws that we find in the Old Testament were given out of love. They're instruction that's meant to say this is the way life's designed. This is the way life works. If we fast forward into the ministry of Jesus, on one of those days, the, the religious leaders had come together and they were trying to trip him up. So the Pharisees came with their question, the Sadducees came with their question, and then finally a lawyer steps forward and says, Jesus, can you tell us what the greatest commandment is? And I'm sure they all thought they had him at that point. Well, now we're going to get him. We're going to see his prejudice. We're going to see something that we can get in there. But how did he respond? He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. Quoting Deuteronomy 6. And then he said this. And second like to it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Quoting Leviticus 19. And he said, on these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. Love. It's not new with Paul goes all the way to the character of our God. Fast forward again to the upper room, the Last Supper. Jesus has washed the disciples' feet. He served them and encouraged them to serve one another in a like manner. And then he instructs them, and he says this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Just think about that for a minute. You love one another just as Christ has loved you. You also are to love one another, and by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We could talk about John 15. We could look at a whole host of verses from 1 John. But I hope you see the point. Love is to be the defining character quality of anyone who claims to be a follower of Jesus. Love is to be a defining quality of your life. You're here today because you're saying, I'm a follower of Jesus. Then love is to be that defining quality and characteristic of your life. Because it's a defining quality of the Father. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Love is a defining quality of who Jesus is. Greater love has no man than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. Love is a defining quality of who the Holy Spirit is. When when Paul lists out for us the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, what's the first one on the list? Love. love for about 10 years in sermon after sermon i've railed on the necessity of love because i think it was probably around 10 years ago that i was struck by that that statement that jesus makes there in john thirteen thirty five. by this shall all men know that you're my disciples by the love you have for one another I began to look around at, at churches and our church and, and what do people know us for? Well, those Baptists, they're really good at fighting. They're really good at eating. You know, you could run the stereotypes. I don't want to be known for fighting. I don't want to be known for eating. I want to be known for Love. That's what Jesus says should be the defining characteristic of us as Christians and of our church. Known by our love. And I am grateful. I I truly am for the grace that God's shown us in this area as a church. Because I do believe a defining characteristic of Metaview is love. And I'm grateful for that but we have to continue to fight for it because love doesn't come naturally. Love comes supernaturally. But we have to continue to grow in our understanding of love and to to put in practice the demands that love would lay on us. And that's what our Summer of Love series through 1 Corinthians 13 hopes to accomplish I realize we've covered a lot of ground already, but I want to briefly touch on the opening verses of this chapter with you today. Writing in the first person, Paul wants the Corinthians and us to understand the necessity of love. And so he begins, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong, I'm a clanging cymbal. Now, I've practiced the drums all week, so bear with me as I show you what I've learned this week as I've practiced these things. It's pretty good, right? No, that's not good. (laughs) Thank you. It's lame. I mean, that is lame drumming, and that's the point that Paul's trying to make. See, the Corinthians, they, they had this, this idea that if they had the gift of tongues, they had it all. And so he says, even if I had the gift of tongues and I could speak the language of the angels, which would certainly be this incredible experience for anybody who had the gift of tongues, didn't have the gift of tongues. Paul says, but if I don't have love, it's as lame as that. Nobody wants to listen to that. Nobody wants to be a part of that. Love has to accompany the gift. And then in verse 2, he writes, If I have prophetic powers, and I understand all mysteries, and notice the, the emphasis, all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. Let's dissect this a bit. Paul says if he has all prophetic powers to have a perfect understanding of all things. He's saying if he had the prophetic ability to answer everyone's why questions. Like, why did God do this? Why did God allow this person to die? Why is this happening to me? Paul says, if I could answer all of those questions, if I knew everything perfectly. Jump down with me. Look at verse 9 where he says this, for we know in part... And we prophesy in part. That's where we're at right now. But Paul says, if, if I knew everything, all the mysteries that God is withholding. What a powerful gift that would be. Wouldn't it? What a prophet that would be. But without love, nothing. Nothing. Bigger than that, he says, even if I have that, I am nothing. If I could answer all your questions, but if I don't have love, I am nothing. Even if you had five-star faith, 100% faith, you could say, mountain, I want you to move over there, and it would do it. Nothing. This made me think of Jonah. God told Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. And I want you to tell the people of Nineveh that they need to repent, they need to turn back to me. Jonah didn't want to do that, and so he got in a boat and he went the other direction. A storm came, they ended up throwing him overboard because they knew it was his fault. He was drowning, and God came along in his grace and brought a giant fish that swallowed him up and eventually would spit him out. And Jonah went to Nineveh. And he preached that message, that prophetic word that God had told him to preach. It was like eight words, that was it. I should have that memorized, but I don't. So he preaches these eight words and the whole city comes to repentance. What prophetic power! Can you imagine that? that just being that experience? And so Jonah... He walks out of the city and he sets up on the side where he can kind of view the city from a distance. And he waits. What's he waiting on? God to bring the fire. God needs to judge these people. And he waits. And he waits and no judgment comes. God brings a little plant that gives him shade and then kills the plant. And Jonah throws a hissy fit, temper tantrum can't believe you killed my plant and god says Joni, you care more about that plant than for all of the people in this town that's basically how the book of jonah ends we love that as a kid's story but we don't usually end it the way the book ends there's a bitter guy who has no love who's sitting on the side waiting for god to judge these people he had all prophecy spoke eight words, and the whole city came to repentance. But he didn't have love. So as far as we know, Jonah was nothing. He had nothing. Then, finally, in verse 3, I hope you notice the crescendo here. We start with tongues, then all prophecy, and and now in verse 3, he lays it down and says, if I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned... In other words, if I give my life, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Even if I give away my life, Paul says, for the benefit of other people, just like Jesus did, if I don't do it out of love, there's no value. Now, it's hard for It was at least hard for me to imagine why would somebody give their life for anything outside of love for other people. But the reality is often we're motivated by love for self. And that's why we do things. That's why we give to other people. That's why we sacrifice. Because we want to be noted. We may want our name on a building. We want to feel needed. And none of those are about love for other people, they're all about love for me. We have to keep our motivations in check. Why am I giving? Why am I serving? Well, The overall point of these opening verses is this. Love is necessary. It's necessary. You can come in here every week and sing as beautifully As an angel, I don't know if angels sing beautifully or not. Some may, some may not. You can give 20%, 50% of what you make. You can do all sorts of things, but if you don't have love, it's nothing. Love is the necessary component. If you're going to genuinely follow Christ, love is necessary. If we're going to be a healthy church, Love is necessary. If we're going to use our gifts to build up the body, love is necessary. So, over the last few weeks, as I've been looking at this, every time I look at this, the the 1993 song by, uh, I couldn't even, Hadaway. What is love? Uh, Yeah, some of you have probably already been thinking that. This baby don't hurt me. Yeah. That's the question we're going to ask. What is love? And so week in and week out, what is it? And 1 Corinthians 13 masterfully defines it. Next week, we're going to learn that it's patient and it's kind. We're going to learn that it does not envy and that it doesn't boast. We're going to learn a lot about love. But But for today, let me simply define it this way, and I stole this from James McDonald, pastor, author. Love is this love is you before me. Say that with me love is you before me. Turn to the person next to you and say it to them. Okay, we're gonna make this as awkward as we can. Look at them, look at them in the eyes. Love is you before me. Now turn the other way, look at somebody else who's on that side of you, and say it to them Love is you before me. That's what it is. Because Jesus set aside his own interests and took up ours. He said, You before me. And he came and he died on the cross, and he rose again to new life. So this week, I want to encourage you, journal. Take take opportunity every day to just sit and reflect on your interactions with love. Maybe it was that somebody loved you. Somebody put you before themselves. And you just want to jot that down and remember that. Or maybe it was an opportunity you had to put that person before you. And just begin to think through this. How am I loving other people? How are other people showing love to me? I want to stir you up. David preached about a couple weeks ago. Stir you up to love and good works. So who's it going to be this week? How are you going to love them? If you don't If you don't think through those two questions, the chances are very slim that love is going to happen. We have to think about it. Who can I love and how will I love them? We're going to show a a music, just a video of a song that uh, is right along these lines. And I encourage you, prayerfully consider these words. And maybe while we're even listening to this song, and it'll have some of the lyrics on the screen for you, Uh, Maybe it's a time for you to jot down who do I need to love this week? How do I need to love them? Uh, But this is the song, uh, Greatest of These, by Hillsong United. I
1: could chase after greatness, first of all. Myself to be found where you want.